Hello listeners, Yamina here. Welcome to the Dr. GPCR podcast. Before we jump into this new episode, we have exciting news to share with you. The new Dr. GPCR ecosystem platform is almost ready for launch. What is it about, you ask? Well, think about a place where GPCR scientists, trainees, and GPCR organizations can thrive and where it's all about science and GPCRs. Access is restricted to members of the field, and each sign-up will be approved accordingly. Once your sign-up is approved, you'll be able to enter the ecosystem and interact with GPCR colleagues like never before. You can still sign up to be an ecosystem beta tester. We are going to open the ecosystem slowly to ensure that you get the best experience. Please keep in mind that the Dr. GPCR ecosystem is a unique place, a first and one of a kind, where we want to make sure that you get the best experience out of this new world. Visit drgpcr.com ecosystem to start your GPCR journey. Also, make sure that you mark your calendar for the third edition of the Dr. GPCR Summit. This year, the summit will be held between October 10th and 16th. Stay tuned as we are working on the program for the summit. Visit drgpcr.com to find out about all our activities. And now, let's dive into this episode. Hello, everyone. This is Yamina from Dr. GPCR, and today I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Anthony Bucard. Uh, hi, Anthony. Hi, hi, Yamina. <laughs> How are you? I'm very good, very good. Thank you for, for having me. It's a, a great platform, and I'm really honored to be invited on the platform, seeing the name of the likes of uh, uh, Lefkowitz and <laughs> Angle. So it's, 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 a, it's a great honor to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad we were introduced and I'm glad we're doing this. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm so happy. So let's 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 dive right right into it. Um, just before I start asking you any questions, just want to give a little bit of context. We were introduced. And um, to be honest, I didn't hear from you until we got I got that introduction email. But then when I Googled you, I was like, wait a minute, you were, you were in Canada as well. <laughs> Uh, so it's a small GPCR world, and yet there is new new people to discover, and I'm glad that we're doing this finally today. Thank you, thank you. All right, so let's let's just dive into it. Um, who are you, and what do you do? Yes, so I'm a Anthony Bucard. Well, I'm a I'm a scientist a, from a kind of a, a broad background. Uh, started a, with a, a training in in Canada in University of Sherbrooke. Uh, did my uh, my uh, bachelor degree, master degree, PhD degree there, and then I decided to move to uh, the United States for uh, a postdoc, uh, where I ended up in the lab of Dr. Thomas Sudov, um, that uh, a lot of people know received the Nobel Prize in 2013. So I basically moved to Dallas, and then uh, we migrated towards. California. So my, my background is basically a biochemist. I started as a biochemist, kind of a uh, kind of a hardcore biochemist, and then I decided to go in pharmacology. I, 
study of receptors. And that's where I met with GPCRs. That's our, my first encounter with GPCRs. And then migrated to the, when I migrated to the United States, I, I focused on another aspect that was also like membrane proteins, but more like adhesion molecules, which we might talk about in a few minutes. And also at the end of my postdoc, I still want, I wanted to go back to GPCRs. So then I ended up making some of a, some, some sort of a fusion between a, those types of molecules. And yeah, so that's my background. So basically now I do a little bit of a neuroscience. So I collaborate to do some a behavioral neuroscience and also a, some a cell biology a work related to the function of GPCRs. So, and still wow. biochemistry and everything still in the, in the pot still. <laughs> of course, biochemistry, you, you can't get rid of biochemistry yes. or chemistry <laughs> at all in, in the field. So, but let, let's take, take a step back. And I have started asking this from everyone. Did you always know that you wanted to be a scientist? I actually, it's kind of a very funny story because uh, maybe that will, you know, that will speak to a lot of people that are there and that try to be, that, you know, don't know what to do really. And I, you know, I kind of uh, grew up um, in social service a lot. So uh, being involved in a lot of a uh, kind of like organizations that help that, a help people on a community a basis. So I, I I was involved in the army for like almost like 20 years. I was in the army. I was an officer in the army. So I, I was always involved in in helping. So either communities that that had disasters or uh, everything really like every every kind of like aspects of a social work and also i decided i had decided to go a work in south america to also um, help basically be be involved in a group of women in nicaragua that was trying to develop a cooperatives a, like some sort of like organizations that put people together but it was basically only for women to be able to provide for their family so they had like special skills so they would like a, a, a gather those skills in that organization and be able to uh, pro, uh, to actually generate products that they could sell uh, but also they would have like an ongoing type of training for people jo joining the organization and also uh, they the, the major problem was a health problem for for those women also for their for their families was that at home when they would cook well the, the, the there was a problem with finding wood but also there was a, a, a not a very efficient way to use that wood and when you you would cook all the smoke would basically create like a health problem for the kids so to make that story short I came at that moment to basically engineer some sort of like ovens, like made from everything we could find, right? from rocks, from um, excrements, from horses, for, uh, to sand, to make ovens that are closed and with chimneys and stuff like that. Something very simple, but that basically made the use of wood very, very efficient. So just uh, at 
I was coming back from this experience and I didn't ha- I didn't really, you know, uh, apply for university in in a, a other than medical school. I wanted to go to medical school and that's what I wanted. <laughs> so I come back from this experience and I was a little, uh, I didn't really know if I really wanted to go to medical school, but uh, I guess uh, that was chosen for me because I was not accepted that year. <laughs> so then I, I, I had this, this notice from the University of Sherbrooke saying that I was accepted in a, a, a program. Really, I didn't know which program it was. I know it ended with chemistry. So I thought I was going into chemistry. So I decided to go. And then uh, when I was uh, sitting down uh, with uh, uh, all the new students and, and I asked, oh, so this chemistry uh, program looks very, very interesting. It's like, well, uh, you're actually in biochemistry. <laughs> so I think you should know that from the get-go. <laughs> And then I was like, oh, okay, well, yeah, well, I guess I, I, I think I, I will like it. But my plan was always to go to medical school. So I spent one year in the biochemistry program. I really loved it. And I applied for medical school and I was basically accepted a, a medical school, but I was already well into the second year of of uh, biochemistry and i was already starting to be involved in in lab and labs so I, from that moment i completely fell in love you have to imagine like i i didn't even know what a scientist was i did i had no clue what a scientist was other than the actual word word and uh, it, when I could actually see hands on what scientists were doing in the labs and the questions they were answering in the labs, I just, I completely, I fell in love really. And I, I rejected that, that acceptance. And I, I, I took a, uh, basically a scholarship to work in a lab from a pharmaceutical um, agency. And then I just, everything fell in, in place. I started working on proteases and I ended up working on, on a GPCRs. <laughs> it's kind of ironic because now all those things are put together in my, in my, in my field now, but it was just uh, really kind of a coincidence, but a happy coincidence. And sometimes that's how things happen in life. You just let things fall, fall in, but also when you kind of like let yourself open to what's around you and a willing to learn from people that are around you, you discover things that you would never imagine. Like, you know, now people know more about this field because of CSI and, you know, and my, in my time, there was no CSI. There was no, uh, (laughs) the closest was Colombo maybe (laughs) for people (laughs) that detective. But, uh, you know, it, it was really like completely foreign to me. So when I discovered this, I was, I was completely amazed by what, what you could do. And also the, the freedom that you had, like uh, intellectually, and also that kind of like contact that you had with your mentors that was a, a kind of a back and forth type of exchange of ideas and not very dog, not dogmatic that's what that's what i really liked is what like day day one you could learn something and then day two it's completely changed by something that you found 
And that for me was, was just amazing. So every single one of my days right now has been just to reconstruct what I learned the day before. So, <laughs> so that's something that I really, I really love. So you, you kind of like put yourself in the mindset of a kid once again, but now with more, it kind of like take on your life and, you know, decisions and stuff like that. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it was, it, it was just, just basically maybe it was chance maybe it was serendipity some people <laughs> but uh yeah it just happened basically <laughs> so, that's so interesting so i have many many questions and let, let's let's take a step back so social work in 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 south america army was that together at the same time and like how does that how, how do you go from there to wanting to go to medical school to then ended up in biochemistry yeah, like yeah, it's... give us give us like a, a kind of a chain of events because I think you're the first <laughs> guest who has you know military experience, social work, and then ends up in the quote unquote wrong class or wrong yeah. field. <laughs> yes, basically. Well, you know my my part is not classic at all. Uh, I I kind of it's a little bit part of my personality. And so it's something also that I try to convey to my students that, you know, be you because nobody will, you know? So basically you, okay. you have to kind of like take advantage of your skills, of your personal skills and try to explore them and see how far you can go with those, uh, keeping in mind certain objectives that, that you want to, to, to achieve and not to kind of set your head on success. That's big word that sometimes it's a little bit intimidating for me, this, this word success. So I, I try, I, I hate to use it, but just to, for you to accomplish yourself to something. So for me, my accomplishments always came through helping. I love to be helpful and that that's all I, I basically tried to do. So joining the army for me was ju just like that. I wanted to learn some skills and through those skills, being able to help people that they probably, you know, don't have that chance. Mm -hmm. uh, in the military, we had, you know, the kind of like the luck not to be involved in any conflicts uh, because that, that really wasn't my, my, my doing in the military. Of course, it's one of the, the backdrop of, of that job, but I, I, I never got involved in any conflict. So, <laughs> but from that point of view, you know, you, you were involved in a lot of different communities that you, you, you would normally see if you were in a civilian life and it, you know, it kind of helped me broaden my horizon on who people are and, and also what the value of people really uh sometimes you know when you're in a certain circle you you kind of leave uh, other circles out just because of you know you're you you know we make excuses we think we're busy or you know oh we have the same interests and stuff like that but really at the base of it everybody has the same interests everybody wants something better something better for them for their family they want to develop you know you know who they are they want they just want to be able to contribute and from that point i that's always been my calling that's why medical school was was an option because i thought that was the only way to help in 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 some ways because i thought health was so important and that was the 
But then when the, the science came, then I saw the, the, the way you can actually help uh, at many different levels. Uh, you know, sometimes it's hidden. We thought, I thought it would be hidden in a lab, you know, but, uh, you know, just in parentheses, if, if anybody tells you that you have to be an introvert to be a scientist, it's completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Because you have to talk to so many people, you have to be really the face uh, of your lab, the face of every project that comes out of your lab, and it, it, it it's almost it's very difficult to be an introvert now in 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 science. But yeah. this parenthesis being closed, so from that point of view, when the the this side of science was revealed to me, then uh, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And uh, so from, you know, from all the social work that I did, I could basically continue doing the same, but on another angle with the, the, the scientist's uh, career. Uh, first, I didn't see it as a career, really. I, I thought maybe it was something in passing that uh, I, I would find something else. But the more... I, I was, uh, you know, I was doing lab work and developing those projects. The more I knew, no, there was no way I was going to come out of this. <laughs> so that's how basically I tried, I, I, I merged those. And of course, throughout all my scientific career, I was involved in the army. So I didn't uh, kind of like leave uh, yeah. uh, the army. So, but I was a reserve. And this is the Canadian uh, this is the Canadian, yeah, Canadian. this is the Canadian Navy. So it allowed me to kind of take time off and be like on a, they call it a supplementary list. So a mm -hmm. list where you, you, they just call you if they need you. But in the meantime, you can basically, you're free to do what you want. And that's when uh, I was able to, you know, explore all these different facets and be involved right. in, in different things at the same time as I was in the military. Uh, yeah. Nice, nice, and and then I cannot <laughs> believe you turned down the uh, the admission to med school. I yeah. think a lot of a lot of people would have said to themselves, "Okay, yeah. I got admitted. I'm I'm just gonna go and do it." But then you <laughs> fell in love so much with science, they were like, "Yeah, no, thank you, I'm good." Yeah, yeah, it's strange because I thought I thought it, it, you know at the time when I received it, it was like summer. The, the summer, exactly in the middle of my of of my uh, kind of like summer training in 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 that lab where I would end up staying, you know, for all my graduate studies, and it came at a moment where I was not I I I kind of like a I had forgotten almost that I had applied. And uh, because in Canada, you have to apply kind of like in January and then yeah. uh, you do some interviews in March and stuff like that. Yeah. And then that's uh, that's when I realized I, I didn't really know why I applied <laughs> at that time. I, I kind of second asked myself, why did I do that? And that uh, I, but I had to consider the offer because, you know, for, you know, from coming from an immigrant family background, you know, like the medical school yeah. and medical trajectory. Yeah. It's, it's the, you yeah. know, it's the one every parents want their immigrant. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I know. I know. It, I know it. Med, med school, dentist school, lawyer. And then the rest exactly. is definitely not scientist. Exactly. No, no nobody thinks about science at that, yeah. at that level. 
And uh, so I had to to kind of ask myself, really, if I if I should turn that down. Uh, yeah. But that's when this thing of, you know, uh, be you, you know, because nobody will kind of kicked in. Because then I was like, why would I go to medical school? Would, would it be for me, really? Or would it be just like to achieve some sort of status or something like that? So then I realized it, it, it was not based on anything real. So for me, at least. And uh, yeah, so of course I contribute, I, I, I collaborate with a lot of uh, physicians and a pediatrician and stuff like that. And I like this collaboration because I see other aspects that I don't re really see in, in, in the lab. But for me, I think the, the, the calling really, really revealed itself once I started doing those experiments and being able to change stuff uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, so yeah so yeah when i turn it down people say, i know you made a mistake you know you should have. You know? <laughs> but you know it's been it's been i don't know how many years like maybe 20 something 25 years ago and i still don't think i i would have you know i, I would never look back on this decision but it was a turning point it was really a turning point at that time yeah mm -hmm. you made you made many many important points and i think it's especially important to call them out for for the for the young generation for the scientists who are you know thinking about an md phd or a phd or you know be you and i love the fact that you just said it and, and it's really about who are you doing it for yeah yeah and it, it sounds to me uh, that you continued and you went into science because you loved it. You ended up in science some somehow, yes. but then you realized that you love it. And it's so interesting. So you mentioned that, you know, uh, you thought it was chemistry and it wasn't, it was biochemistry. Was it because I you know when you apply for, for university in Canada, you have these three choices. Yeah. So my guess was that it was medicine and then biochemistry and then I guess chemistry, your third choice. Exactly. Yes. Yes. So it was in that realm. And also you, you, you apply for different uh, universities. Yeah. And uh, so this one, I think my mom had asked me to apply for, <laughs> for this one because I had put all my eggs in the same basket applying for medical school in Montreal. So mm -hmm. uh, for people that are not accustomed to like the ge geographical setting Montreal is an island and every every you know we kind of like the the heartbeat of this province called Quebec so everything happens on on that island a lot of things happen on that island and I was born there I you know I lived my whole life on an island basically <laughs> and then I was going to the mainland you know so basically so I this university uh, short broke i didn't know really a, a lot about so it's outside of the island and it's it's south of, of montreal so for me it was also coming from this uh, this uh, this kind of like summer training in nicaragua helping people in another country it was also refreshing to come out of the island to go to another university that was not, you know, know what I would classically go for at that time uh, to stay on my geographical area. So I was able to yeah. kind of come out and live by myself. Also, I left the, the family home and stuff like that. So that was a kind of a whole experience. But because of that, I hadn't really 
thought really that I would ever come out of that island. Yeah. <laughs> so so yeah. when I got this acceptance to that program, I really didn't really look at what it was because I know it was just a placeholder for me for next year to apply for medical school. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it the best I can and see what happens so I can have the, the best grades and apply to yeah. medical school again. Yeah. So, a lot of people did that. A lot of people did that. And it's so interesting because you mentioned, you know, being born in Montreal and doing everything in Montreal. And that's pretty much, I wasn't born in Montreal, but that's pretty much that what happened to me, you know, living in Montreal, going to a Francophone school, obviously you apply for, for the University of Montreal. Somebody asked me, why didn't you go to McGill? And I said, I never even thought about it. Maybe it would have been different because the system is different. Yeah. At McGill, but kudos to you for you know moving out of the island and then going to Sherbrooke, which I think it's a really nice area. Yeah. It's a good university. It's a small little t town compared to Montreal, and uh, culturally, it's very different than Montreal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very different. It also has this uh, because you know uh, with the history uh, of Canada, with the colonization of the the French and then the the British. So this this kind of like uh, southern southern border type of uh, towns have a really kind of like the infusion or big infusion of both type. Uh, so so you can see it as uh, different levels, uh, but it's less integrated a little bit than Montreal, for example. So you still have like a British side, uh, the British descendants, and you have the mm -hmm. Francophone side. Uh, but it's a very nice town. And at that time, it was kind of like a rebel, a renegade type of university because they were trying all these new programs. Uh, and I'm not 100% I'm not sure, but uh, I think uh, University of Sherbrooke and UCAM, which is another uh, university in, in Montreal, came up with, with those programs that integrated the the learning uh, in and in, in the industry so you nice. you were able to in within your program to basically have one year one full year in the industry uh, without the, that affecting your your grades but being part of the curriculum so at that time it was kind of new it was kind of fresh and i like that about that university that uh, you had less barriers uh, to yeah. the the learning kind of process yeah. but also the strategies for learning I love that and then it's funny because I think about my my time at the University of Montreal and it was a, bit, a little bit similar to you that I did my 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 bachelor's master's and PhD in the same program in biochemistry at the same university the training in the same lab but I do remember that the the, um, the structure of the courses during the, the bachelor's was very it was a very French program so you had to go through these steps you couldn't pick and choose it was one class that went together and then you had to uh, go through that class graduate that class in order to take the next year's class and if not you ended up in in, in the situation where you were in different group you can finish on time um which is not the case based on what you're saying at Sherbrooke and it was definitely not the case at Miguel Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it was more rigid, uh, as it's I. Very I francophone. Okay. Very French. Okay. Not not Quebecois French. It was very français. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Yes. That rigidity that that comes with it. Then again, I was 
raised in it, kind of. So it seemed natural. Now, looking back, I don't see why not. You could have, you know, chosen the, the yeah. courses and then give having the opportunity, as you mentioned, being in industry a year and learning new things and broadening your horizons. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 That was that was that was at that time kind of a new way to approach it. Uh, so I, I I kind of liked it. And maybe that's maybe that a little bit uh, the basis of, you, you know, my choices also, how I see also. Um, now that I give classes and that I contribute mm-hmm. to the training of students, uh, it's also I think uh, an element that I try to infuse uh, to them that you know nothing is set in stone. Also, for yeah. uh, once you take a step, you know you you can always take a side step. You know it's so it's it's yeah. you you can't be afraid of those of those moves. Yeah. And it's because it's all going into one direction, into making you a person with more skills. So yeah. that's why you have yeah. to embrace. Again, you're making a lot of great points. The BU, the fact that there is not only one path, it's not one single road, you know, not point A to point B to point Z. There's multiple turns and twists that you can and you should try out. You shouldn't limit yourself. And it's all goes back to like becoming that that diverse or versatile person. Yes, yes, yes. And I, the, the one last thing I may want to add to that, and just because others tell you it's not the way to go, doesn't mean it's not the way to go for you. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yes, because everybody is different. Everybody does things different at different period of their life. Yeah. So it's just, you know, circumstances and what, you know, you know, you kind of integrate those circumstances and try to make the best out of them every single time. So Agreed. that's, you know, that's, uh, that's good. It kind of, now that we're talking about this, but it kind of takes me back a little bit because, uh, you know, uh, well, no, no, not many people know that, but I, I, I lived a little bit in Haiti because my parents were moving there and we, and I was caught a little bit in the, the, the civil war, the war when the, the, the resident got, got kicked out. There were a lot of instabilities and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, living there with like the, you know, the low resources and, uh, you know, not being able to come out or being, if you would come out, it was a very kind of dangerous kind of like situations. And also having like not many resources for, for the everyday thing, like food or something like that. So that kind of like, puts like another perspective on things like <laughs> when, when you have choices in front of you you know so uh, yeah. not to be afraid to take those those steps also because yeah. you know it's it, circumstances will change you know at that time I thought I would never come out of there and that would you know would stay there and probably you know in the worst case probably died there and because of the dangerous circumstances and it came close a few times <laughs> but I was able to come out uh, from the help of uh, many people but I was able to come out and to yeah. get to Canada and to be to go back to where I was born and to develop something I never thought I would be able to. That's why I actually, when I joined the military at a young age, it was because of that, because I, I, I didn't 
I couldn't imagine not taking advantage of those opportunities. And when I saw what people were doing in in that branch of the army, I was like, wow, you, you cannot just let that go. <laughs> so, yeah. so at that time, that was my choice. So at different period of my life, I make different choices. And I, it would never be the, the same choices as when I was 20 than when I'm 40. And uh, that's why sometimes, you know, it's hard for me to give advices to people, you know, kind of life advices to people or what they should do or what they, the best advice for this or that. I mean, the thing is, you evaluate what you, where, where you're at. And I think, you know, just trust yourself to make the best decision at that time. Mm -hmm. you, you made a bunch of, again, great points, which are, I think, that we need to be highlighted. And you mentioned, you know, being caught up in the civil war and being in a situation like that and, and understanding that resources such as food, which I think a lot of people in the Western hemisphere just cannot understand, you know, not having food or not having electricity. Yeah. And uh, full disclosure, I've lived, well, I, I grew up in Algeria at a time we left, but at a time where, where the terrorism was really at a high level. Um, happened walking to school, hearing gunshots, not being able to school, be, going to school because the whole school was, actually the whole area was closed off. They were looking for terrorists or, you know, having just that one pair of shoes that, you know, if something happened oh, yeah. to it, you had no yeah. shoes to go to school <laughs> or, you know, not having enough food on the table. But I think, I think those things need to be spoken about because they determine who you are as a person and they also make you value what you have. Exactly. And yeah. then one, one last thing, I think they also make you realize what's important. That's true. That's true. The core of what's important. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Yes, Definitely. In a way that shapes who you are, you know, I became a scientist because of all those things. And the way I approach my science right now, uh, my lab, you know, uh, my lab is 100% a hundred percent a you know uh, kind of uh, accepting of uh, everybody that wants to come uh, from mainly from a uh, how do you say that a how do you say that poor backgrounds or like uh, kind of like marginalized backgrounds. So I try to incorporate my lifelong experience into how I can I can I kind of like a, a direct my lab right now so it it, it shapes you in different forms it does. <laughs> it, does. It, does. it does it does so yeah I think it makes you reevaluate what you call a failure and what you call a success exactly <laughs> exactly which is why I, I always say I don't like the word failure I like the yeah. the, the expression lessons learned what exactly. not to do <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yes. What not to do. All right. Before we go back into the GPCR world, let me let me take an, a super step back. As as a teenager or as a child, what what did you want to do? What did you like to do? Were you more into science or more you know community type of work? Did you you know how 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 were you as a child? Yeah, as a child. So as a teenager, as a child, I basically. I didn't really have like some sort of, uh, I, I like to do 
everything. I like to do every. I like to put my hands on everything I could do. I was very high energy, a child. A, a, but you know, a, because of that, a, some people also <laughs> try to kind of a, take advantage of that. So I made some bad decisions <laughs> <the way. laughs> at that time because I had so much energy. But then when I became a teenager, then I really kind of like did like a 90 degrees completely. I decided not to uh, direct that energy in anything bad anymore. I didn't want to to be involved in 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 stuff that wasn't if that wasn't helping, that wasn't uh, productive in a social kind of uh, aspect. So that's at that moment, I yeah, I really involved myself in 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 that military because I joined around a fifteen. I joined at fourteen years old. And uh, I, from that moment, I just tried to to basically live the most I could from that experience. So uh, learning how to, you know, ride boats, <laughs> navigate, and communicate in Morse, and uh, so all these different things that I would have never learned in the the civilian a, a kind of like setting. So. I think also from that, I also discovered myself, what I could do. And basically, you'd be surprised that you can basically do almost everything. <laughs> as, as, as long as you try, you can basically achieve basically everything and it, not always on the highest level. That was never my goal, but always to, to get the gist of it, get the, 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 the basic of it and be able to kind of maneuver in 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 those environments and be able to when i uh, confronted with a situation for example that a uh, involve a uh, these these aspects what i would be able to uh, react and be, uh, make decisions based on my skills so that's mm -hmm. that's basically what i like and because of that i think like the the capacity to uh, to adapt, you know, that I that I kind of developed from that experience, yeah. uh, helped me kind of like be able to do many things. Also during my career, also as as a as a as a scientist, uh, I became a, a chef at one point. Also, so I dedicated myself on. Uh, I opened a restaurant in San Francisco and kind of a, it's uh, underground restaurant. When the, back in the days that didn't exist, I think we're only like three in the in the Bay Area, but um, uh, so because I, I knew I had those skills, I wanted to just exploit them. And it, it worked very well. <laughs> For some people that saw the, Net, the Netflix series, um, Chef's Table, you can yep. see me on the second season on the, <laughs> on the, the uh, Mexico, the Mexican restaurant of uh, uh, Olvera. And this is a, a good restaurant here that's called Puyol. And uh, that's because I always kept, tried to kind of like open my, 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 how do you say, my, my realm of possibilities also of my skills to, yep. to just apply them. And that's what I think that's what really makes me happy. And that's always made me happy from the kids or teenage years until the adulthood is to be able to do something productive with whatever I have as a skill. That's always like kind of exciting to me. 
and uh, explore. That's also that what I really like. Like as a kid, I would always explore stuff. Like you know, if a house was open and there was nobody in it, <laughs> I would like to go in there and visit and and uh, some sometimes construction structures that were up. I would like. Uh, I always like to go in there and and so it, exploration of uh, of the world that came later when I started to open my horizon and travel and go to other places and 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 kind of insert myself in different cultures and stuff like that. I did an exchange for of six months in a Jewish school, for example, and that completely also opened my resin in, 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 it was in, in Montreal. So it, it's all different experiences that kind of like, kind of shaped my character as an explorer. I love to explore, I love to explore my skills, but I love to explore what's around me. And also to, I learn a lot from people. I like to extract a lot of uh, a lot of people that are around me, and sometimes even my students are are, are surprised that I kind of like trust them so much and I really <laughs> listen to them <laughs> because on on the kind of rigid system that we have here in Mexico, uh, they're they're taught to only listen and uh and kind of like take in the you know what they've been taught and there's not really a, a, lot, a lot of back and forth so when i give them that opportunity they're really kind of sometimes <laughs> they don't know what to do with it <laughs> with so much freedom but uh it's all part of of what i became today what i was as a teenager as a child so yeah it's <laughs> okay so okay let me start let me a lot start of stuff. here let me stop you here because I don't think we're going to ever talk about GPCRs. This is so interesting. First of all, um, okay. Uh, I was going to ask you about the chef thing because we talked about it before starting to record, but I have many, many more questions. When do you sleep? <laughs> because the way, the, way, the way you went through all of this, I mean, it's clear that you're an extrovert. It's clear that you're a high yeah. energy person, but having done so many things, is the the question is when do you like how do you do it all yeah i try i try to kind of be organized you know i try to also try to uh, i always have my priorities and mm -hmm. i when i think it's the right time then i can you know switch to the other priority other priority but really you know like my life is kind of an open field. <laughs> I like to, to, of course, my scientist career is the one that I, I focus more now. Although I, I had plans to open the restaurant here, but when the COVID hit, then it was kind of like, <laughs> taking, I had to take a back step for that. But I, I, I do sleep. <laughs> I don't sleep many hours. Like kind of my schedule is between five and six hours. But during that time that I'm awake, I try to always advance a little bit a project. So sometimes it doesn't even seem like it, but if you do just a little bit per day, it ends up being like a huge advancement at the end of the week, a huge advancement at the end of the month. So then, uh, I mean, when I opened that restaurant, it was basically from a kind of a immigration issue that I had in the United States. I could no longer be a postdoc. I could no longer be employed. I was employed at Stanford University. And because of that, 
I had to find something else and to support my family. <laughs> so I had to find something to, to have an income. So suddenly I was without an income uh, day one, day two. So I decided to just use my skills and I just start, started reading, you know, uh, one week long. I started reading uh, on, on cooking, what how people were doing it and stuff like that. And I, I knew... I wasn't. I didn't have the resources to open like a real restaurant, so I decided to just like send you know a messages to people that wanted to just come to a social dinner at uh, at one point in in my home, and it was a, a, a eight seatings, you know, just eight people could come, but it would yeah. last the whole evening. So yeah. that switch to to that. To, uh, to that part basically was because of like a kind of like a, a bad circumstance but then I changed it to a, <laughs> a good one yeah you make the exactly. best out of the situation exactly and little by little just I started getting better getting better getting better and then uh, with word of mouth it kind of the, the the word the word got out and just like that you know just like doing stuff little by little then you know by accumulating also knowledge and learning you just like end up making great stuff <laughs> so. agreed agreed and, and it's funny because you, again you make a bunch of great points and i'm really hoping that you know people who are going to be listening to this episode walk away smiling and going to sign up for netflix and look <laughs> at the second season of, of chef's table Be- it's funny because i did watch all of all of the series and now that you mentioned it i was like oh my god i have to go back and find you <laughs> yes. it's a very small part because they they called me they knew i was here and the chef they called me he said uh, are you still doing your your kind of like uh, rebel restaurant i was like no 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 i'm here now uh, just uh, for work i have a position here i was like okay do you want to participate to this so, but it was again, you know, because of this kind of like op- op- openness to to different things, yes. I decided yes. to participate to the to the shooting. I think it's I think it's, I think it's great, <laughs> and I do remember parts of of Chef's Table. I can't remember which season it is. I don't specifically remember seeing you, but I do remember seeing a part about these underground restaurants. And it was it was in Mexico where people would come into homes and people would cook and it was just they were showing how they were making the tortillas and the grains and it was a very I think it's a good first of all I think it's a great idea of inviting a small group of people into your home and then making them local food or very you know special food and you discover a culture. Yes, but the but honestly, kudos to you. But the point I wanted to make is is the 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 thing that you mentioned. You know that, yet yeah, you do sleep, you are very organized, and then doing things little by little. And a lot for a long time, and I can speak of experience for a long time. I didn't realize that doing every day, putting in a little bit of time, and when I say a little bit of time, it can be fifteen minutes every day to build something. At the end of the week, it's going to accumulate at the end of six months, at the end of a year, you're going to see how much that 15 minutes every day counted. Yes. Yes. It becomes huge. <laughs> it does. It absolutely does. I've been, I've been reading the literature and I've been trying to get, you know, keep, keep tabs on the GPCR field, although I'm not directly in the lab working on GPCRs, 
I don't work in the lab anymore, but the 15 minutes or 30 minutes during my commute every day allows me to learn so many things. And I, I honestly, I put a timer on knowing that it's 15 minutes and on okay. in those 15 minutes, I'm not doing anything else. I'm focusing on a topic. On that. Oh uh, yeah. 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 That works. <laughs> that works. That works. So you what, focus. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's a matter of focusing and it's a matter of just putting in the time. Yes. And not realizing that 15 minutes matters. Yes, totally. <laughs> There's, there is this, uh, this author, her name is Laura Vanderkam, and she talks a lot about, uh, you know, time management and uh, how to, to be, be, be good at managing time. She wrote multiple books. I think one, one of the books was called What Successful Women Do Before Breakfast, What Successful People Do Before Breakfast. Um, and I, she was mentioning that there's 168 hours in a week. And then she calculated down how many hours you sleep. If you if you sleep eight hours, this is the number of hours that remains. And then the question is, what do you do with that time? With the rest. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Which I thought was a really nice way. And she every, every I think every couple of months, she does have this challenge where she challenges you to track your time in 15-minute increments for an entire week in order to figure out where does your time go. Those. Oh, I see, I see. <laughs> I think oh, that could yeah. be really, really useful, but I don't think you have a time management issue. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> what were you cooking in, in San Francisco? Oh, that was interesting. That was a, because my background is a Caribbean. So my family is from Haiti, uh, but I never cooked Haitian food in my life. So that was actually at that moment, that's probably where I reconnected most with with my roots, you know, with my family, because yeah. uh, then I would call every day. I would call my mom every day. I would call my aunts every day to say, how do you do this? Why do you put that? Why do you? But the thing is, in San Francisco, there was, there was almost no Caribbean restaurants. Uh, I mean, no Caribbean. Well, there was no Caribbean restaurant, that's for sure. There was no Caribbean uh, supermarket where you could get the, pro the, the produce. So what I would do is shop in Asian markets to do my, to make my, my food. So basically, and I was trained a cooking a French, uh, the classic French cooking. So basically what I was doing is kind of a fusion. I would use French a, a cooking techniques to cook mm -hmm. Caribbean food, but with Asian produce. So when people would come, you would come, let's say, and eat a taro root, for example, and, and the Caribbean, they do it a certain way, but then I would use French technique to kind of transform that root and be able to present it to the, to the, to the, the customers. So every single, every single type of traditional Caribbean food, uh, did not look traditional at all because of, <laughs> of, of, of how it was constructed. But uh, it, was, it, it was just this kind of like, um, also this fusion that attracted a lot of people. Uh, people wanted to know what it was and where it was. And also because it was more like an event uh, so people would, would get uh, to the place, they would have uh, not food right away. First, mm -hmm. they would get to know the other people. We would have like board games, uh, 
to start and then people would get to know each other and then would have a, a, a dancing also later in the night. So it would be like a six hour long type of event uh, where we would, uh, we would cook. And uh, since I wasn't very good with pastry, I would have like a, 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 a pastry chef that would co collaborate with me from the, the, the cooking school, the culinary schools in San Francisco. So that's that was really like a full mix and that's what i love because uh, you know separate school so it's very kind of like poly uh, multicultural type of environment uh, so everybody that would come would come from uh, from uh, there were people from asia from africa from the caribbeans uh from europe everybody would actually love the the environment and everybody learned in those in those occasions so yeah it was, was <laughs> it was more of a of a social event yes it goes back to your roots of you know being social and and bringing something to to yes. Uh, to people yes yes exactly because that's what was was exciting about about this was like to have many people around my food around the food that i would give them on the table they would never they would never they, ne they never knew what they were going to get because it depended on what I found in the market the day before. And so it was always something fresh for them. Uh, but also I I really loved their take on it because they would be like, oh, wait a minute, this is like oh, what my grandma was doing, blah, blah, blah. And for example, if I would go, if I would do, for example, congee, for example, people would be like, oh yeah, I remember when I was sick or when it was it was uh, cold outside, I remember this meal um, and so such a such part in China or in Hong Kong, my grandma used to make this. And, but why is it relevant for you? And then I would explain them uh, the, the, the kind of the the relationship so it's yep. yeah it's it was always a joy for me to see the feedback and to see how people kind of reacted but also how it kind of like brought back all those memories for them so at that moment when they took that that mouthful and I would see it I would say oh, immediately it was like, oh yeah <laughs> it yep. was almost like immediate <laughs> And so that's so interesting because every time I think about taste, I think about GPCRs, but then you you kind of in in just one event in, in one dining experience, you use so many skills as a scientific skills, but at the same time, you know, GPCR related, and then and then the culinary uh, skills. Did you go to culinary school? No, so I wasn't formed as a chef at all, at all like a formally. So I was kind of like uh, I learned from a friend of uh, 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 uncle, a friend, uncle of mine. Okay. <laughs> so then he was a he was a chef. He was a French chef. So he, he showed me how to make sauces. So, so that was my first introduction yeah. to mm -hmm. uh, to to those techniques. And then he went from there. And then you know we would cook from time to time. And when I thought I had enough skills, then uh, I would, you know, uh, make it for bigger groups. And I catered, mm -hmm. for example, some events like that. And then that's when it happened. Uh, I, I I basically kind of like self-proclaimed myself mm -hmm. as a chef at that time. <laughs> <laughs> because nobody knew me in San Francisco. I was, you know, right. I didn't work, you know, because also in San Francisco, there's all these kind of 
postdoc type of way of uh, yeah. to, to to work in that industry. So, for example, there's French Laundry, which is a Michelin star uh, restaurant that is well known uh, throughout the world. So a lot of people come from there and then work yeah. on other restaurants, stuff like that. So I didn't go through that postdoc. Yeah, like type legacy of type exactly. of. <laughs> Yeah. So I, I was completely, you know, out of the blue. But because of that, I think people were attracted to the to the to the method. And yeah, yeah. I think I think when if the food is good and you have a good yeah. time, it doesn't matter <laughs> who you trained with, whether it was with Gordon Ramsay or, you know, anybody else. Yeah. It's the result that that absolutely matters. Have you ever thought about putting together a cookbook? It, I thought about it. <laughs> That's a very good, very good question. I thought about it. Uh, I, actually, uh, it because of my reconnection with this Caribbean, my Caribbean roots and all this stuff. And I thought it was getting lost a little bit because of all the political situation. Less yeah. focus in post is is put on that because now people are just trying to survive and try to yeah. <laughs> they do their everyday tasks. So I thought, yeah, I did think about putting together a cookbook that would revisit, but the old, old recipes and uh, the kind of like, you know, from the, even from before the Haitian revolution, uh, from like the, the even during the colonial time, the slavery time. So revisit those recipes, but with a fresh kind of look uh, and adapted to, because here living in Mexico, we're very lucky. Basically, it's like the refrigerator of the world, like <laughs> the pantry of the world. There's everything here. So with this flavor, with the, the Mexican flavor. So yeah, I did think about it. <laughs> I think you should. <laughs> I think I, th I think you should. I think you should. Yeah. And it would also, you know, I understand that you know with COVID, you you can't think about opening a restaurant right now. But I think being able to create those dishes, and then making that that cookbook while we hopefully get back to what a semi-normal state, uh, could be a great way to already plan those dishes out. So at least set up yes. the uh, the foundation. Yes. For that's when true. you'll be able to open your restaurant. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. A bunch of ideas. One of the ideas was actually to have a migrant food because the thing about migrant food is always something very compact, very yeah. a, a also full of flavor, but in like small bites. Yeah. So yeah. a lot of cultures have that. So basically the, the purpose before COVID was to exploit the, 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 the migrant food from different cultures yeah. so to have a restaurant yeah. like a, a, a food truck or something where yeah that was gonna say exactly you just have a food truck at home yes yeah there there are you know i i love the idea of, of you know that the food truck idea because then you just pack it up and then go, go. and uh -huh. you can still bring in uh really great flavor really uh being very um artistic at the same time reminds me of the of the movie chef Uh, yeah. You know, with uh, yeah. with John Favreau. John Favreau, yes. You know, and and I love I I love I really love that movie, and I really love the fact that you know he started at the bottom because of everything that happened without giving it away, and then it was just an idea of starting a food truck and look at yeah. where he got. Yeah. And every time I watch that movie, I get hungry because it's just, everything looks so amazing. <laughs>
yeah they really convey well so the <laughs> yeah the feeling of uh, yeah yes. it, it does it does look amazing <laughs> all right so so you you were a postdoc and then you you converted you you became you went from dr bukard to uh chef bukard chef, yeah <laughs> how did you end up in mexico so mexico was also a that that openness uh, that i was talking earlier about and that exploration that Uh, that always inhibited me uh, uh, from from earlier on. So when I finished my, well, when I was still in my postdoc and you're applying for, for places, I, you know, like everybody else, I was applying to the big markets. So Canada, United States, Europe, Germany, France. So that's in England. So basically that's where, you know, everybody wants to go because, you know, it's the reputation, it's the, and, uh, but to me, there was something missing for me. I didn't, I didn't know if I really wanted to stay in those, in those markets uh, because I, I had been in there for, for, for a long time and uh, for more than 10 years working as a postdoc and also as a faculty in Stanford and in Dallas and UT Southwestern. So I kind of knew, I, I kind of, I felt like I knew what it was to work in, in those markets, but I, I felt like maybe with my experience, there was like maybe 10 other people like me or 20 other people like me uh, that could do the same in those markets. But so I felt like maybe I wasn't as ho- uh, helpful that I would like to be. So I kind of, decided to explore outside of the United States and those big markets. So I explored in, in, in China, and a, but because of the, the cultural barrier for me was more difficult to integrate myself there. A, I considered it, but then I chose other markets. And then when I, I, I came to Mexico because I never went to Mexico before, I came here, I saw that, okay, that was the right mix, the right fit for me uh, culturally and uh, geographically. It was close also to, to my family and uh, I could basically also do good science in that market. So I and there, I thought, yeah, I could really contribute to something that wasn't there before. So there's nobody working on a adhesion GPCRs a, here in Mexico. So a, of course, it gave me an opportunity. There's nobody working on synapse formation, which is a, a kind of a soft product of working on, on GPCRs. You can work on many physiological events. So mine was the, the formation of, of synapses, of those junctions that are in, in the brain. So it basically, this basically came all together as not only I could put my skills up front, but in in a place where, where they weren't exposed to it before and i had access also to a pool of students that uh, traditionally were not favored uh, so that's why also i chose i chose mexico city because it's a, a lot of people from the latin america area come there to study because we have this huge university that's called la unam that has like more than 200,000 students. Uh, it's huge, huge, huge. It's, it has its own city and uh, kind of its own zip code in Mexico City. <laughs> so it's 
it attracts a lot of people from the Latin America and also from communities that are also isolated or more or less isolated in, in Mexico itself. Uh, many Probably many of you know that we still have like a, a indigenous a languages and indigenous yes. groups here in, in Mexico. So not everybody speaks Spanish. There's like more than a, 50 other languages. So it's it brings them to my lab so i've i've had you know opportunity to to have people from uh, chiapas which is completely in the in the south of the of the country from co communities also that are smaller uh, up to completely up to the north of mexico which is close to the border with the united states and you know seeing all these different kind of life experiences and cultural so to have access to that for me was really gold for somebody with a background like mine that comes with a social kind of point of view to everything. <laughs> so it was gold. And that's why basically I decided to come is all these conditions were completely reunited. Yeah. And I knew I could really benefit myself, you know, but also give a lot, give a lot to the, to the, and I'm not Mother Teresa, you know, I'm not like, you know, not, but I really love to do something helpful and really, for me, that's really the, the word, the word for me, be helpful, you know, contribute to something bigger than yourself and be able to not do it all, you know, not be like, you know, the jacks of all trades, choose something where you're good at and that you're not excellent at, that you're not going to be probably not be a big success, but you can be very good. You can be, yeah. and those, those people can help you become better. So yeah. that's the, that's the, the path that I chose. And yeah. So for a short answer, Mexico was the, the, the mix for me and was the, the right place for me so far. I've been here eight years now and I still love it. I still find, you know, every day things that I can, you know, can improve and, and my contribution to this, to this, to the, the my new society now, my new <laughs> social Reductive society. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> But I always also, I tell people, you know, a little bit of a joke. I try always to move south. You know, I started in Canada and then went to the United States and now Mexico, trying to get closer to the equator. <laughs> I like the warmth also. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. I think I think it's 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 a social thing, but it's also uh, the weather is not uh, is not a bad thing either. Exactly. And the var variety in food, so you can also uh, cook. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that's so great that's so great so let's let's get back a little bit to to the science and although i yes. you know i think i think you're you're a unique guest because you've done all of these things and there are so many take-home messages from from our our past couple of uh, you know minutes that we've been talking and let's let's move on to the gpcr part so you mentioned that you know you were at church at in sherbrooke you worked on GPCRs, then you were in Thomas Sudafis lab, and you worked on adhesion molecules, and then now you're working on adhesion GPCRs. Safe to say that adhesion GPCRs are your favorite GPCRs? Uh, yeah, yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Yeah, because they kind of like, um, 
integrate everything that I I I love because I, uh, I was always intrigued by how cell communicates. You know how you can actually pass one external signal to an internal one. And now it's obvious. No, it's all receptors stuff like that. But we know so little still. We know so little <laughs> about those. But uh, to me. It kind of like yeah compounded uh, the the this this cell cell communication that 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 I like, and addition to PCRs in particular because uh, I started working on classic you know family A type of GPCRs, uh, more particularly the angiotensin receptor, the uretensin receptor. So it was like kind of a, a, you know a one gene produce you know uh, one you know, kind of like one a uh, you know a uh, no splice variants in that family very kind of like uh, you know upfront good receptor solid you know yeah. and then I ended up studying those cell adhesion molecules were not GPCRs just like you know single pass transmembrane yeah. proteins that were full of splice variants and all those things so very complicated genes and then I found out that addition GPCRs were kind of like taking both aspects together. So this addition, so for cell-cell communication, but physically being able to join cells. And on top of that, also be a potentially also a signaling, you know, to G proteins and be like those transductors that we, transducers that we that we know from the, the classic families. And now we're just starting to kind of like appreciate this, this aspect of those of those uh, GPCRs. They're called GPCRs because they were seven transmembrane domains, but until up until recently, we didn't know if they were really GPCRs if they were really G-protein coupled. So, yeah, so that was, you know, that was my interest because also for some reason, and again, that's also something that happens a lot in my scientific career <laughs> is kind of like chance. Sometimes uh, you just, uh, just as a parent, this is my first paper in my master's degree was basically based on something that I forgot on the bench, uh, like, uh, <laughs> and I decided <laughs> to analyze it when I came back from a weekend, and it gave me a great result that I was able to replicate, and boom, that was my first paper. So when a, I was in the life of a Thomas Sudov working on those cell addition molecules, I des I decided to just test something to see if there would there was actually a kind of like a. a how do you say that, like uh, 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 a relationship between those two mm -hmm. families. And yeah. I decided just like that to test, like, you know, like everything starts in a recept receptor field to test the binding of something to something else. <laughs> and I did. I decided to test many pairs and, and I found out that one of the cell addition molecules I was working on actually bound to a GPCR that I wasn't working on. <laughs> So I was like, well, bingo, that's, I, I always wanted to go back to the GPCR field. So I tested those uh, also by, uh, 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 to the advice of one of my coworker who said, oh, you should try this, you know, maybe you never know, maybe it does bind. And it it bound and it formed uh, that the, that 
that you know that also they, they were able to a joint cell they were able to form an adhesion complex a, an intercellular adhesion complex which was great because then that was the start of uh, of a, a new project for me and for my now for for my career and it was again just like being open to something sometimes because <laughs> like a lot of people say that there's a lot of reasons not to do an experiment there's a lot a ton but sometimes you can just do one you know if you have the possibility the possibilities to do so and it ended up being that 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 those two proteins that actually we knew from like 10 years before were binding this toxin. There was like a, a toxin from the, the spider. This uh, it's called latrotoxin, which came from the, the venom of the of the black widow. So we knew for a long time that they they had receptors in the nervous system because they would uh, elicit some nervous uh, uh, system phenotypes like paralysis and uh, a huge um, uh, release of neurotransmitters at the synapses so we knew they were they had targets there and the targets were discovered but nobody had put those together before. And uh, my colleague was like, well, if they both bind to the toxin, maybe they actually do something together. together. And that's what we're, we've been on so far. <laughs> so, that's, that was an educated guess. Yes. That was yes, a very exactly. educated guess. And you had to answer that question. I mean, come on, if, if both exactly. binded exactly. and they are expressed in the same cells, then well, they must be doing something together. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just a matter to, to of trying and i tried it it worked i didn't want to believe it the, thomas sudov also didn't want to believe it because he, he worked on this for 15 years before i made that discovery so that's something <laughs> and then yeah yeah i guess still it's still controversial that that aspect but we try to provide evidences you know uh, more and more about the functional aspect of that of that interaction so that mm -hmm. it becomes less and less esoteric for for people but uh, and for us to <laughs> I understand the difficulty of, of working with the Dijon GPCRs. I mean, um, I've seen, well, um, Ines Liebscher and, and Simon Promel also work on, on in the field of, of the Dijon GPCRs and I've read a couple of their papers. And I, I always find adhesion GPCRs as being these very unique receptors that can do so many things. And especially, I think it's very confusing with that long end terminal. That's, and, and the size, I mean, yes. 6,000 amino acids. I mean, come on, that's 10 <laughs> GPCRs in one. Yes. yes, they're huge, huge molecules. And also, not only that, but they also come like in kind of two flavors, type of two subunits at the membrane. So not only they're producing those big chains, but these chains can be a, a proteolized, a, like an autoproteolysis process that a, at the membrane, so they are present in kind of like two machinery. So yeah, it's it's a, it's a little bit scary when you approach addition GPCRs at first, because uh, a lot of them are still orphans. They don't have a, we don't know ligands. We, we don't, don't have any ligands described for them so far uh, but that i think that's gonna that's gonna kind of like be resolved in the next i think next two or three years uh, uh, more will have a ligands 
So that's kind of a scary aspect for them. But also there is like dealing with that size, you know, and kind of like a heterologous system where you have to overexpress them. And also if you want to study them in their, you know, in their physiological context, uh, then also they have all those splice variants. So that makes it also <laughs> complex genes to study. But uh, it's it, it that's part of it. That's part of the challenge of, of studying adhesion GPCRs. Uh, it has this difficulty, but it has also those those moments where you're like, wow, okay, okay, now we're, we're starting to understand those machines. And you had, for example, Demet Arach on your show and yeah. uh, many others also in the field that study uh, uh, structures, uh, those uh, addition GPCRs at the structural levels. Well, these are uh, studies from those labs are really bringing a lot of knowledge that we didn't have before. And, you know, from the plethora of structures for classical GPCRs that they are and other families, they're just one for, <laughs> for just the main domain of, of uh, addition GPCRs. So that's gonna slowly change, you know, people, uh, those structures are, are gonna come out and coming out uh, from those labs also, like uh, of the likes of a uh, Demetaraj, for example, and a, uh, you know, try to infuse the field with more and more of those knowledge that we didn't have before. So that's basically what's kind of, I think that's gonna, what's gonna kind of like, I do say like a, a, pro, a project the field a little bit further, a, mm -hmm. all those, a, those structural elements that we're lacking. Mm -hmm. And how do you how do you uh, because to me the way the way I see it in Adhesion GPCR is it's like this huge very interesting system very difficult to work with very chaotic at the time just maybe because I'm not in the field what do you what do you choose to how do you choose what to work on in such a, a difficult field like what do you work on right now in the lab Yeah so what do we work on so basically. It came from a being interested in, of course, those kind of like molecular machines that are the GPCRs, but really also is the context where they're involved. And for example, uh, this these adhesion processes are really it, it opens really a Pandora. Pandora's box because it's involved in almost everything from development to uh, to yeah to you know adulthood and also uh, addition processes and de degeneration processes when they, so really the being interested on in what to work on is means being interested in a biological event a physiological event that you're interested on, for example, in, in our case, is the formation of synapses and a, how the, the molecular code involved in those addition processes that lead to synapses, how they're determined by the cell, how they're laid out almost like a dictionary that has to basically be a deciphered, uh, deciphered uh, along the way. So, for us, that's what really interests, interests us is basically in 
pathophysiological context, for example, in disease, in, in disorders, in more or less a, a psychiatric disorders, for example, a, like um, a, a ADHD, for example, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, autism, for example, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, and these, how they actually um, rely on the function on those proteins. So we tried to uh, study uh, processes like, for example, a, a, a synapse formation in the context, for example, of addiction, for example, addiction to, uh, to drugs because they involve uh, a reward part pathway in the brain that is often affected in a lot of psychiatric diseases, disorders, like schizophrenia, for example, a, a autism, a, that has so, sort of like a, a different type of reward, a mechanism involved that is social reward. But so all those kind of center around this area in the brain that is responsible for, for maintaining that reward active. So that's what we're interested in, in, in seeing how those uh, uh, adhesion GPCRs as those molecules affect those pathways. And also because it's adhesion prone, uh, we're interested also in looking at a, a, a kind of like tumor tumorogenesis, uh, so cancer events uh, that involve the loss of adhesion versus the recuperation of adhesion, but with different sets of molecules and different dosage also of, of those molecules at, at the right place, because also it's all a polarized process. So we tried to put those DPCR that we love, but in a physiological context that we also love and that we also think we will bring the, the knowledge further. So we try to focus in the lab in those different aspects of physiological events related to GPCRs. And also, you know, along the way to see some transversal knowledge, because something that you learn in the context, for example, of cancer can be very useful in the context of synapse formation, for example, or in the context of uh, communication in lungs, for example, or in secreting insulin, for example. So we try to see if one, the, the knowledge can be passed on to different areas, uh, just based on the basic, uh, uh, how do you say, discovery that we that we made. I love it. I love it. I love the 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 integral aspect of it, and really focusing on 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 the phenomenon, and then really drilling down. And again, I think even in your science, the social aspect yeah. of the work that you like to do is you're really being uh, a, a social worker when it comes to the different diseases and these different physiological events. But that let, let me, leads me to my next question. Uh, just if you can give us an idea about what type of assays do you run? Like, what do you do specifically in the lab? Yes. How do you try and answer these questions? Yes. So uh, basically, we, we start from a, a standpoint of cell biology. So we we because we we work a lot with um, uh, cell cultures with uh, a primary cells for example or a uh, cell lines. So we approach it on what happens 
to the physiology of the cell in different contexts when we, for example, express those receptors in those contexts, or if we silence those receptors in that in that in that same in in that same context or different contexts. So, what we try to 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 develop in the lab is techniques that would um, help us exactly decipher those signaling cascades, for example, inside the cell. So, of course. Uh, we rely a lot on uh, nowadays on bread, <laughs> bread assays. Everybody's doing bread. A lot of bread, uh, <laughs> a lot of bread uh, assays have been done also in our lab. And now with the the different tools that exist, uh, we try to um, uh, decipher also what the, the signaling cascades also can be for uh, those um, uh, addition GPCRs uh, involving different aspects also of, of their, um, I, would, I would say, molecular uh, be behavior. So we, we, we use those, um, those assays and we also uh, look at a, a lot at, at the cells themselves, how those addition GPCRs change their morphology, the morphology of the cells. So we study a lot the the, cytoskel the cytoskeleton of the cells. Uh, there's many types of uh, cytoskeleton, uh, the actin. There's uh, intermediate filaments, etc. So we try to see how. And because also we 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 were able to describe uh, such a change of morphology, how those addition GPCRs change a, these a cytoskeleton a component to be able to integrate them in a, a different process, which could be migration, motility, for example. So all those that are involved in in a, a, in kind of like a movement pattern of the cells, because even in synapse formation events, for example, there's a, a previous events where the neurons have to migrate through like a forest of other uh, neurons and through their molecular determinants, they can find the right partner. So we try to apply this in a reduced system and try then to uh, go to the, the more complex system. So uh, also we use a lot of uh, uh, biochemistry because uh, those uh, the difficulty working with adhesion GPCRs is that their ligands are actually membrane proteins. So they're anchored to the membranes. Um, uh, but we try to kind of adopt strategies to be able to kind of like take them out of the membrane, make them soluble, and then uh, be able to work with them uh, in, a, in a way that is a little bit more easy than to have to work with them uh, anchored to the membrane. So we use a biochemistry to engineer those, those proteins, a molecular biology to engineer those proteins, and then biochemistry to try to uh, purify those in, in, in high a kind of like um, uh, high purification schemes. And also, uh, so uh, kind of like attached to that, uh, we use also kind of ways to see how the, uh, the those uh, those complexes actually stabilize cell junctions. So not 
not only the signal that is transmitted inside the cell through bread assays and microscopy assays and, and a, for example, to describe the cell that received the signal, but also what those junctions uh, look like and how they're organized and how they uh, actually, uh, how they depend on the state of the addition GPCR. So we look, uh, for example, we do a, a microscopy assays, for example, and also flow cytometry assays to be able to, um, to quantify those complexes, those cell-cell uh, junctions in a population-wise a, a sample. So uh, population-wide sample. So we try to uh, use as many kind of techniques as possible to come to try to answer a question. So, uh, and they vary. So, but when we have a question, we try to find the best way to answer that, that question. And sometimes it's techniques that we have in the lab and sometimes we don't. So uh, we collaborate uh, with uh, other labs also to, to, uh, to answer some, some of those and also for them to infuse that knowledge in, into, into our lab. So our techniques are kind of very, uh, yeah, very kind of diverse. Uh, the only thing we don't do is electrophysiology. <laughs> we, are, we haven't done that so far. <laughs> but everything else, uh, yeah, from microscopy assays uh, to uh, biophysical assays related to uh, uh, resonance energy transfer, breadth, fret, etc. Yeah. Nice. It looks like it's a very diverse. Uh, you know, toolbox that you do have. And I'm glad that you mentioned these tools and the fact that, you know, it's sometimes difficult to work with these adhesion GPCRs because of their expression, their size. If you had a magic wand and you would, you know, be able to manifest a new tool that you feel like it's missing, what would that tool be? Oh, wow. Hey, magic wand with a new tool. Yes. I think a new tool. Well, <laughs> that new tool, I guess, you know, it will probably never be made, but it's something, you know, we try to access uh, with indirect methods. But my new tool, really, <laughs> if I would put myself in, you know, like a really childish mind and, you know, like a fresh mind that would just be like a, a small, tiny camera at the surface of the cell <laughs> and just yeah. like be navigating through all those 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 uh, molecules and be able to locate yours you know almost like you know like a, a uber app that can locate <laughs> your 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 car on the side of the on yeah. the, the cell surface you look at your receptor and just look what's around and be able to yeah. that that <laughs> if i had that one you know it's <laughs> like in in a fairy tale <laughs> situation yeah. that would be something like that uh, a tool that would allow you to really see in real time but at a small scale what's happening on the on the cell surface yeah i think that would be great i i, I imagine ourselves you know in these uh like nasa astronaut suit type <laughs> of things and then you end up in the cell and then you can just watch the the <laughs> different events that that happen and obviously it's it's uh, in real time but then you can appreciate each interaction exactly exactly and see like the domains and also the dynamics of it yeah. because the, that's a little bit our you know the the bottleneck because uh, even with like structural studies we still kind of like 
stuck with you know it's a it's a picture when we take uh, you know when we have a, a structure from cryo em for example it's a picture in time of that particular protein at that particular moment at that particular state so in that particular membrane type etc so we of course you know we cannot do everything you know probably the the the, the state of innovation is not there yet but you know with that small camera it's really to kind of like to kind of like exemplify or illustrate, you know, that this where the bottleneck is, where we, we could actually see the dynamic of it or something like that. So <laughs> I love it. I love it. I mean, people are paying a lot of money right now to get out of the the earth and look down on the earth. <laughs> and as GPCR people, we're just going to go down into the cells. <laughs> exactly. It's a good analogy. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I very, very much love it. Um, and we've talked about this throughout the, the, the whole podcast, and, and and it's about advice to, to junior scientists. And I think our discussion for the past hour plus has been about advice throughout living, listening to your story. But what is there, what other advice would you want to give junior scientists or anyone actually listening to the podcast? Yeah, I think it, it's basically, I think maybe other people have came up with it, but it's really like, you know, don't be afraid to to be afraid, you know, basically like, you know, when every, you have to imagine like when you're a kid, you come to school, your first day of school, you're kind of scared, but then you meet people and then, but that meeting other people led you to, to actually learn about the experience. You see that they have the same interest as you. You And basically that becomes less frightening. And then you go to the classroom and they show you that map of the world. And then you discover that there's all these other countries Then you're scared again. Then you realize, okay, I live there. Okay, this is less scary. This is my country. This is where I live. And then, oh, okay, my, well, my neighbor, their parents come from that other country. Oh, okay. It's, so then it becomes less scary. So I think this this is just uh, you know also this explorator in me that basically it, it, it comes out. But when you're not scared to be scared or not you're not afraid to be afraid, you can actually learn a lot, a lot about life, about who you are, but also sometimes a lot <laughs> in your experiments. Like when you do something, you're willing to take the further step and uh, maybe take uh, you know a little bit of a chance and stuff like that and even when you choose the place where you want to do your graduate studies or you choose your uh, your mentor or you it's always like a frightening experience but if you willingly put yourself in a situation where you're willing to take risks you're willing to then things will fall into place. But it's not necessarily mean that you're going to be the most successful guy. Again, that that word that I hate, but <laughs> that you're not going to be, you know, the, the first at it or, but you might. But if you never try, if you never do it, you might, you might not know about it. But the thing is, if you enjoy that ride, from the moment you put yourself in a situation where you're open to those risks, you will enjoy it. No matter what, <laughs> no matter what is the, the end product, you will enjoy it. Whether you're there for a short time or you're there for the rest of your life, <laughs> you'll have the best time 
of your life during the time you're you're doing it. So that's my only advice, really. <laughs> I love it. I love it, and it reminds me of that that um, cartoon that has been on social media. You know, the comfort zone circle, and then the rest where the magic ah. happens. <laughs> and I think yes, it is frightening, and yes, but it's fine for it to be frightening and it's just a matter of you know getting used to used to exploring new things and doing something yeah. and I love that you mentioned that multiple times actually throughout our discussion that you know you learn new things you didn't become the most successful or the best at it but it you became good at it and I think yeah. oftentimes as scientists we feel like we have to be the experts or the best and that there's It's also cultural. I think it also comes from, from the culture that you come from. And we mentioned, you know, parents thinking that if you're not a doctor, a dentist, or, uh, or a lawyer, then it, you can't be anything else. But um, you can be just good enough. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Because you have to realize you were less good at it the day before. Exactly. <laughs> than the day exactly. After. Exactly. So it's... Uh, piece by piece and uh, don't be afraid to to do something new yes <laughs> totally. super three aha moments that defined your life in general because I think you've had multiple lives based on <laughs> on all the different things that you've done uh, but as a scientist or you know and anything that you feel like defined who you are today three aha moments oh I, I would say one would be um, I think when I when I when I first when I applied for postdoc positions, <laughs> so I, I applied to many places, and then I knew I wanted to go to Thomas Sudoff Lab. That was my my first choice, but I applied to other ones because I didn't. You know, I, I didn't think I would make it to that lab because I thought, oh yeah, it's 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 such a big team there, you know, a powerhouse. So, uh, you know, not to put my my hopes high too too much, <laughs> apply to other places. And actually, you know, my aha moment was like everybody's human. I mean, it seems it 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 sounds so trivial to say that it sounds so cliche or something, but it's such a moment where you realize you're sitting in front of those people, you know, I sat in front of maybe four different Nobel, you know, Nobel uh, laureates, you know, Alfred Gilman, Thomas Sudoff, Dyson Offer, um, uh, Brian Kobielka, and uh, uh, more than four, a lot of people. But every time, They convey this. It's it's just normal people, even if they have this big trajectory and they they yeah. created all those things and they 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 have all those papers and they're really famous and big. They're just humans. I still remember this moment where, uh, when uh, Thomas Sudov got the, the 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 Nobel Prize, we did a small ceremony in a courtyard at Stanford University. Brian Kobielka came because. He had it uh, two years uh, prior, uh, the year before, I think, yeah. right? 2012, yeah. 2012. So then he came and, you know, and it was the simple moment, you know, everything was doing fine. And then comes a Michael, oh, 
I can't remember his last name, but it was a Nobel Prize in mathematics that also had it the same, the same in uh, the same uh, year, and uh, as uh, Thomas Sudov, he came, and his wife came with him, and <laughs> she took us aside, and we're just having a discussion, and she's just like, she just, I can't believe you won the Nobel Prize because at home he can't even pick up his own socks. <laughs> <laughs> so. These moments are like these places where you realize what you do in life is what you do in life. Like you, you okay, you do those great things in science, but you steal that father, you steal that brother, you steal that sister or that daughter or, or so and so that they still consider you, you know, as as a child, even if you're a grown adult. It's human stuff. It's human interactions, it's human behavior. It's just that. I mean, we amplify it a lot with all these social media and, and medium that we have to kind of amplify people profiles. That's normal because that's that's what we live in now. And it, it you know, we have to communicate, convey a message that is strong, impactful, short, yeah. and and meaningful as as we as as we we say but the thing is when we finish with those interviews when we finish with those papers stuff like that we still have to go home and sleep and yeah. do our regular task and uh you know like our kids still say dad or they still mad at us because we we don't want them to watch netflix anymore or we the thing is it's as simple as this as in every day. And to me, that I think that's uh, that was a hard moment because I was considering those guys as like unt untouchable. <laughs> yeah, but they still had to pick up their socks. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That reminds me of a story. So I was in Tom Sackmar's lab and he was a postdoc at MIT in uh, Goldman Corano's lab. And so based on what Tom tell, told us and uh, anything you can read about Gobind Karana is that he was the simplest man ever. And one story was about the fact that one day after he, he won the Nobel Prize, one day two secret uh, service agents came to his uh, office and they took him to the White House. Oh. And the reason was because since he hadn't won the Nobel Prize, the president wanted to give him a medal. And they called, they emailed, they sent messages and letters, and he he would never cared about no. that. <laughs> to the point that they sent the secrets, you know, the secret police to take him, and then they brought him back. And another <laughs> interesting thing was that he never picked up the phone, but there was a separate phone line uh, that, and that number was only known by his wife, and that's the only phone he picked up that's because he had other things to do. <laughs> and you know I, I and I love the point that you make that you know at the end of the day Nobel Prize or paper or celebrity you're still human you still have basic needs you're still that son daughter uncle whatever mom dad to those kids and it's I don't I I think it's about just doing what you love to do and always trying to do something more Yes, yes. <laughs> and the rest is just details. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love I, I love this, the sock idea, the sock story. <laughs> <laughs>
It's very simple. And I think that's one of my aha moment, but it, it's been kind of like followed me because every single step of my career also, I still consider, I still have this thing where I consider other people like, oh yeah, they're untouchable or something like that. But then I have to remind me actively that no, this is not the case. This is just yeah. like, this is life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think it, 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 it also reflects very well this misconception, but I, th- I don't think, I don't know if it's a misconception or if it's, if it's, as you mentioned, social media, is that a lot of very good students who may be very good at the, what they were doing or they're destined to do something great are too afraid to email the Nobel laureate to, you know, get an interview or get a call or share their ideas. And this example that you just mentioned, like, I think it should, people should think about the not picking up their sock, but having a Nobel prize (laughs) as to, you know, I'm just going to email that person. Whatever happens after that is out of your control, but you did, you took that step. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Because if you don't do it, you will never initiate that thing that could be like something huge in your life. And yeah. You know, like for me, that that post that completely changed completely my life, you know, completely, really completely. And it was a a small decision that I decided to take coming from this small, you know, place in Canada and then applying to this big lab. And it was as simple as just establishing a communication and following up on this communication. And the thing is, if people don't want you, they will tell you. They will say, yeah, no, I don't have space or try to apply next year or something, but they will say something. And uh, sometimes you will have no response. Sometimes it happens because they're so, sometimes they're so busy, but try, do it. And then (laughs) you will see the result. You (laughs) never know. You'll never see the result. Yeah. You never know. (laughs) Definitely. Agreed. I love that. I love that. Any other aha moments? An aha moment. Of course, I think it relates also to those experiments where I, when I published that yeah. <laughs> first paper, that was like, oh, wait a second. I wasn't, because I was so kind of like limited by the protocols. And of course, I was just starting. And I thought, okay, you could only do it that way and no other way. If not, it wouldn't work. And it was like, it was like an enzymatic reaction. So, but, you know, it's simple. Enzymatic reaction depends on the substrate for sure, the rate of conversion, but it's also time and temperature, you know? So I guess, you know, I didn't think about it, but I could just leave it more time. (laughs) And that's what I did when when I forgot it on my bench because I I was going for the weekend. And maybe if my my former advisor listened to this, it would be like, oh, that's what (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but it was a weekend I had uh, army training and then so I, I forgot on my bench but then when I came back I, I you know I could have just put it in the trash and said no let me just run that sample and yeah. see what it gives and that was I think yeah that was something big because then we actually solved something that we couldn't for like for like months wow. <laughs> just at that moment <laughs> yeah then, i think i've I've heard of stories of people uh getting their master thesis out of the trash because they were like yeah wait a minute let me recheck something <laughs> and they had already thrown out down the samples and then they got them back and up oh, there you go they got their response and were able to reproduce the, the data 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. If you're able to reproduce, if it's not, then <laughs> if it's not, it's not. But at least you know you were able yes. to reproduce it, which is I think exactly. really important to keep an open mind. Yes, yes, uh, yes. <laughs> uh, that's that's fantastic. Last but not least, and I ask this from everyone again, and I think you're you're located and geographically, and you know as you mentioned, it's a big university, and it's a really nice nice place to be if you have job openings. In, in your lab, where can people find you? I'm thinking of yeah. all these postdocs back up in Canada, freezing right now, <laughs> thinking, I think I could go down to Mexico, do some breads and, yeah. you know, and be in a warm climate. Yeah, because now, yeah, we have the same capacities as any labs in the world to do bread and stuff like that. So if they want a, a, to find us, we we have actually a, a website so you can just uh, type a book our lab uh, on 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 the on google and you will see our wix uh, uh, website and you, you can see for example all the projects uh, listed uh, everybody we have in the lab also mm -hmm. and uh, when we have announcement for um, uh, you know for uh, postdocs for example or students we also post it there and uh, currently uh, we need people to work on our addiction uh, project um, uh, so it's also posted on on the on the website and uh, yeah so it's uh, wix the wix site of bukar lab you can you can find all the information about us that's uh, fantastic and we're going to put it on our website as well so this episode is going to have a page and we're going to put it there, but I can also tell you that if you'd like us to advertise your uh, positions, uh, there's just a quick form to fill out at drgpcr.com slash career. Oh, and uh, we'll be happy to uh, to share it on social media. Oh, perfect. Okay. Yes. Yes. See, perfect. Brett's facts, <laughs> higher level uh, questions, Adesian GPCRs, and the Mexican weather. Exactly. <laughs> It's very nice. Mexico City is elevated, so we have always the same weather all year long. It's always 25 degrees during the, the, the day, always, always. Maybe one day or two during the, the summer, it will go up to 30. But if not, it's always 25. Even now, when the winter is 25 degrees, but it's elevated. It's a dramatic city surrounded by volcanoes. So uh, it's a very dramatic landscape and also very densely populated, but also a very good opportunity to learn a lot about culture, about food, about people. And also, you know, you, you're still close to the to the United States if you want to go, to Canada if you want to go, to Europe, uh, there's yeah. flights uh, over there. But uh, on top of that, Mexico City is this clash, uh, you know, between the old traditions and new traditions mm -hmm. still alive. So you still have uh, people that speak the Mayan language. Uh, so the Nahuatl, for example, uh, that are still present here and they live also a very typical that was life but also you have a, the new world when they came the the spanish for example the french <laughs> so you have this nice mix of cultures here and yeah it's it's a it's a really it's a great opportunity to learn a lot uh, new things and new cultures and i yeah i still i still love it so <laughs> but that's i'm biased <laughs> <laughs> that's great well maybe we should organize a gpcr conference 
there. Yes. Yes. As soon yes. as possible, but I think we should we should think about it, and it should be sometime in February when it's the coldest in Canada. Yes, <laughs> go to the beach or something like yeah. that. People know yeah. a lot of the beach, but also have probably a view of the city and everything yeah. that there is. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, that's something to think about. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Anthony. It was great talking to you. I think we learned a lot about science, but also about you know, the, the you're the trade of uh, the jacks of all trades at this point. And From, we wish you all the best. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for inviting me. It's a great experience. Uh, I loved it. Uh, you're very easy to talk to. It's like just like a regular conversation, you know, coffee conversation. So for anybody that wants to participate, it's a great uh, media. I love uh, the platform that you set up and also the GPR, uh, GPCR Summit, the Dr. GPCR, GPCR Summit uh, that was uh, uh, last year was a great opportunity to learn and uh, about other people's work and labs. So I invite everybody to follow your, your podcast. Uh, it's, it's, really, it's really nice. It's really great. Thank you so much, Anthony. And obviously, everyone is welcome on the podcast. And I want to highlight this because before we hit record, we were just talking about this. Um, you don't need to have 50, 100 years of experience in the field. Everyone is welcome from anywhere in the world, whether you're a student, a PhD student, a postdoc, master's, or you're a PI, independently of where you live on this earth. Um, everybody's welcome on the podcast, and I'm so happy that we finally got to record this episode. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Emila. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us and listening to this podcast episode. We'd like to thank our guest as well as our team members, Attila Forrest and Ines Pinero. Please make sure that you subscribe to the Dr. GPCR newsletter, find us on YouTube, and if you like our podcast, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast. You can also leave us a testimonial at drgpcr.com testimonials. Another great way to support us is to share your favorite Dr. GPCR program with your network and colleagues. Don't forget to check out and register for the Dr. GPCR ecosystem at drgpcr.com ecosystem. Email us with any questions or suggestions at hello at drgpcr.com. Until next time, stay safe.